All right. I'm very excited today because the guest on my podcast is Dan Moore, who is the president and CEO of Rockefeller Group. And uh, as everyone knows, this podcast is known as On Site. And it, my guests are, you know, the people who I think are the leaders and the influential people who are changing the cities uh, around the world and the way we live in them. And as head of Rockefeller Group, Dan is certainly one of those people who fits that category. And I'm very excited to learn a little bit more about him, his trajectory, where he's from, a little bit about Rockefeller Group. And I will say, you know, on a personal note, he's one of the nicest guys in the industry. Very personable, honest, charming, a true gentleman, and an absolute pleasure to work with. So, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to to meet with me today and, and chat and welcome to On Site. Sean, thank you very much, and thank you for such a, for such a nice introduction. I'll do my best to, to live up to all those uh, superlatives. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you, and appreciate the chance to chat today. So let's get right into it. You know, real estate is one of those things that I, I find people come to not necessarily from a place where you know they were they were kids, and a lot of kids don't say, "Oh, I want to be a real estate developer when I grow up, or a real estate broker, or an engineer." How did you come to be? the president and CEO of Rockefeller, and what was the trajectory starting as far back as you're willing to tell um, sure. about how, how you got here? Uh, sure, no, happy to talk about that. And you're right, real estate developer isn't one of those things you even know exists when you're a kid. It's not accessible like a policeman or a firefighter or an astronaut or or even an architect. It's something you find out later on in life, which is, is certainly what I did. But I always knew when I was younger how much I loved buildings, loved playing with building sort of my material type things like Legos and blocks and all those other things. And always really enjoyed those kind of activities growing up. And when I was in high school and thinking about college, I really was thinking about going into architecture and went into an undergraduate program uh, at University of Notre Dame where I studied and began as an architecture major. It became apparent pretty quickly that architecture was not going to be my career. Uh, I didn't have some of the the soft skills and and drawing skills and some of the aesthetic skills that I think were were paramount, especially the way Notre Dame teaches architecture, which is a tremendous amount of hand-drawn work, especially in the first three years. But I still retain that passion for the built environment, that passion for buildings and structures and how things are made. So while still early on in my freshman year, switched over to civil engineering and specifically structural engineering. And that was a great fit for me. Um, it combined some of the things that I was really good with on the quantitative side, the math and the physics and the sciences with studying of how buildings are built and how structures are built um, and really was the right place for me to get to, which again is a little bit of what undergrad is about, right? Sort of discovering where your talents and skills may lie. And so that that path of starting in one direction and then ending up in another um, is really a huge part of that undergraduate experience. What you're saying is really important my f- oldest daughter is now, you know, in college and she didn't have a passion for any one specific thing, but she's kind of figuring out now as a freshman, more importantly, the things she's not interested in doing, you know, and I think undergrad school is kind of an exposure to that, you know, the things that you're not interested in doing, but it's always fascinating to me to see how people kind of land up where they do and how, you know, their path leads them to a place where they're doing something that they're ultimately passionate about. So I think that's that's a very good point you bring up. 
And I was, I was fortunate, right? I was in the right place and I had a very understanding sort of faculty advisor who said, yeah, I can see you're really, this doesn't seem to be the right fit. Maybe here's some other things to think about and help sort of guide me in that way. So those, those sort of touch points with, with folks along the way are, are vital as well at that sort of young, young age and that formative stage of your, your growth. Were your parents very um, proactive in like what kind of background did you have before you know, decided to go to Notre Dame? So my dad uh, was a career military officer. He was in the Air Force for about 26 years. Um, and so we moved around a lot. Uh, he worked more on the communications side. So not necessarily on the, on the science side or the engineering side. Um, he grew up um, primarily down in Texas. My mom grew up in a, in a small town called Peoria, Illinois, which sort of if you're from New York, all you, the only way you know Peoria is the concept of will it play in Peoria, that old cliche about, about Broadway shows. Um, mm -hmm. Small town in Southern Illinois. She lived there. They met in college in Indiana, got married, and then uh, as my dad had his Air Force career, moved around internationally and nationally. So I was one of those military kids who you know, would spend one or two or three years in any school and then, and then moved around, eventually landing in Colorado, uh, which is where I consider home to be. It's, it's where um, my folks still live and where if you aggregated all of the times we lived there over the course of the, the 18 years before I headed out is the most number of years we lived anywhere. So, so I call Colorado home. But it wasn't that, you know, architecture, engineering or real estate wasn't part of our family. It wasn't anything that you know, had really been exposed to growing up. It was more one of these things that you just I kind of had a natural affinity for and was encouraged to pursue in, in whatever way made sense as I went to college. Colorado is a beautiful state. Are you a skier? That is my one indulgence. Um, I, I joke with people when they ask me what I do and I say, look, I don't I don't golf. I don't play cards. I don't hang out with the boys. My two priorities in my life are my family and my job. And the, the one indulgence I do give myself is skiing. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do and, and the way that I recharge my batteries and really fill my tank up. That's awesome. What's your favorite um, mountain? So uh, growing up in Colorado, we never really went to Utah. It's only since I moved out to New York that we've gone to Utah more and more. And uh, because of logistically, it's a little bit easier. And uh, as I discovered Alta out there in Utah, I think um, on a day-to-day -day basis, that's, that's my favorite. It's a pretty special place. I've had some of the most fun days on skis I've ever had skiing out at Alta. Awesome. Do you know Jimmy Chin? Do you follow what Jimmy Chin does? No, I don't know Jimmy Chin. For the listeners out there, he's, he's a National Geographic explorer, photographer, but he's an incredible skier. He's out in Jackson, Wyoming, and he's kind of, he filmed Free Solo, that film about free climbing, and he's just an adventurer. It's like I follow him on Instagram, and I'm like, I want to be Jimmy Chin. Like, <laughs> he embodies everything that's awesome about being outdoors, and like he does it in a beautiful way, and um, but yeah, but anyway, there's... A lot of lot of beautiful stuff that he puts out there, but all right. So yep. Notre Dame, and then, so you go to school, and then then what happens? You you finish undergrad school, and then so uh, I went to I went to Notre Dame on a on a scholarship on an Air Force ROTC scholarship. So part of the obligation post graduation was to go into the military. Um, you and I have talked about this in the past. It's one of the things you and I have in common in our past is military service. So graduate from Notre Dame, commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Air Force, and spent the next four years as uh, what's known as a civil engineering officer, um, similar to what the Navy's got. If you've ever heard of the CBs, some folks are pretty familiar with the CBs. That's the Navy's version of what, what the Air Force has. And got yeah. to do um, some really interesting things, some amazing things you get to do at a very young age, between the ages of 22 and 26. 
when I was in the Air Force serving both stateside in Washington State and later in the in the D.C. region, as well as a couple of opportunities to go over to the Middle East um, and do some special things over there. And just a tremendous learning experience. Um, the amount of responsibility you're given at a very young age for both people and budgets and materials and mission, um, I think is pretty unique in the professional world and certainly was formative in how I've approached my career after I left the military. Just from my personal experience as well, a lot of what I learned in the military while I was going through it was miserable, Um, (laughs) you you know, but in hindsight, probably some of the best experiences that I ever had, you know, forming habits, uh, discipline, work ethic, you know, a lot of really positive things that uh, just, you know, are fundamental in a lot of the way that I live my life and the things that I do and was was really a great experience. And I think almost an experience that I would recommend almost every everyone has if there's an opportunity to have it. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of validity to that. I think you learn real time the difference between leadership and management, um, which are two very different things. I think you also have an opportunity to gain some perspective on what real stress is versus what we like to sort of consider stress in the workaday life. I think it's one of the reasons you've seen in the last few years, in particular, a lot of the, the top flight MBA programs have really made an outreach to the veterans community because they're finding um, not just in real estate, but in, you know, in banking um, and in a whole host of industries, uh, they really love those folks that come out and have that military background because they know how to approach a problem, break it down. Um, they're high integrity. They're ability to deal with the day-to-day stress of work life is put in the context of situations where they were dealing in a much more serious environment. And so they've got a perspective that allows them to excel even in the face of, you know, what we call stress in day-to-day. But if you've been overseas and been in a place where there was shooting and, and whatnot, um, that's a whole different level of stress and puts those kind of things into a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, so then what? You end your military service? I did. So I, I got to the end of my commitment with, with the Air Force after four years. It was an amazing experience, um, but decided that I, I wanted to, to do something different and take a different direction and really was focused on the construction industry. Again, sort of staying in the realm of real estate and the realm of the built environment and was thinking very hard about going to graduate school and getting a construction management degree. And I was really lucky. Um, when you look back at your life, you, you see in retrospect, there's certain points where if you're lucky, you got a really good piece of advice. And if you're exceptionally lucky, you were smart enough to take it. And at that time, when I was considering what my post-Air Force career might be and was talking about construction management, we were out to dinner with some friends, uh, some friends from school. And um, because we were all still young and nobody had any money, my buddy's dad was taking us out to dinner and he owned his own engineering firm. I was talking to him about my plans and he said, you know, it's really interesting. I get it. Um, understand why you would think that way, but have you ever considered, you know, going and getting your MBA? That might be an avenue that opens up, you know, different possibilities or different perspectives. If you want to go and be a construction management professional after that, you certainly can, but maybe consider doing something a little broader on the educational side, just in case there's other things you might be interested in. It was one of the best pieces of advice and frankly, you know, changed the whole trajectory of what I was, what I was thinking about. So made the decision to apply to a number of MBA programs, I said, look, if I'm going to make the investment to not go to not work anymore, as well as the investment in the tuition and everything, I wanted to try to get to a top flight program. I was fortunate enough to be 
admitted to the Wharton School in their MBA program uh, and graduated from Wharton in 2000. So do you think a lot of the benefits of what you got at Wharton were the people you met and who you were exposed to who helped you from that standpoint or, or what you learned in the program? What, what, what are the takeaways from getting an MBA at Wharton? So it's, it's all of the above. And honestly, Sean, the education in, in the realm of things like finance and accounting, things that I'd had no academic exposure to um, was obviously helpful marketing strategy negotiations. But what it really did, we, you talked and, and began with the intro of, you know, kids don't grow up wanting to be real estate developers. In my first year, I was still thinking about what I wanted to do and went to, was going to company presentations. I knew I, I was gearing myself towards real estate and probably toward finance as well. And went to a presentation um, that employers would typically come up in the fall or spring semesters and give a presentation about their company. I went to a presentation to a company called Heinz, a Houston-based global real estate developer, um, one of the most well-respected real estate development companies in the world, if not the most. And I went to that presentation, and I still remember it was um, Hasty Johnson, who was uh, sort of the most senior person there, and then a junior person who was a year or two out of business school. Went to that presentation, and I went home that night and had a conversation with my then fiance, now wife, Wendy. And I said, if I could have described the thing I want to do with my career, it would have been exactly what those guys were talking about. It's interesting. It's exciting. The kind of work they do, the cities that they're working in, the opportunity to really impact people's lives through the work you do and create these wonderful, beautiful buildings. I said, that's what I want to do. And I'm really going to focus in on that. Now, this was 98 to 2000 is when I was in business school. So this was internet 1.0. Nobody wanted to be in real estate. It was all like pets.com and this.com and B2B and B2C. There was a very small cadre of us that were really focused on real estate at that point. And I remember distinctly, there were people saying, you know, how are you going to explain to your grandchildren how you missed the single biggest change in the U.S. economy since the Industrial Revolution, meaning obviously the internet and e-commerce? And I said, you know, if you can show me how you make money by delivering dog food to people door to door for less than you bought it for, I'm all in. But I really like real estate and I understand how that works. So I'm going to spend my time on that. Um, and so that worked out really well. Yeah, amazing. And then you went on to work at Heinz? I did. I did. So I had, I had gotten focused on real estate development. Heinz was one of the places I was most interested in. Um, again, was, was lucky through the program at Wharton. Beyond the people that you meet and the opportunities that are presented, there was a mentorship program. And I was able to get a wonderful mentor, a guy by the name of Michael Topham. And Michael, for years, ran the Heinz Europe and Middle East slash North Africa platform. And Michael and I got to know each other my second year of business school. I had applied. I was fortunate enough to be given a couple of offers at Heinz. And one was to go to the Denver office and one was to come to New York City. And I was really torn. Um, Colorado was home. Uh, I'm a skier, as we, as we talked about. There's a certain lifestyle. It's a wonderful, wonderful place um, to make a career. But New York is New York and New York is so singular. And I was really trying to balance those two things. Um, never mind the fact my wife is from Long Island and we've got family ties out here as well. So we had we had both of those pulls on that. And I was talking to Michael about this. And again, we talked about pieces of advice that happened along the way. Another one was Michael talking to me. And he'd worked in a number of places, both in the U.S. and overseas, before taking on that very senior role at Heinz. And Michael said to me, he said, Dan, look, if you start in New York, you can always move to Colorado. The road doesn't go the other way. And he's 100% right. So 
with that in mind and the thought of, you know, we were still pretty young, uh, newly married, you know, no kids, made the move to New York, moved to Manhattan, started to work for Heinz uh, in New York City in the summer of, of 2000 uh, and stayed with them for 16 years. Wow. Amazing. Do you think that's still true today? That the road, you know, goes out of New York easier than it comes into New York? I think most definitely. I think the, the, the level of complexity, the level of sophistication, the business of New York is so different than most other places, uh, certainly in the U.S., other big cities. There's just no place like it as far as its size, its depth, its breadth. And it's the, the cliche about making it New York. You can make it there. You can make it anywhere. I think holds true today as it ever has. Interesting. What what do you think? Like, is it because everything is bigger and the buildings are taller? It's more competitive. All of the above. Uh, is there anything more specific? It really comes down to a level of complexity, which which encompasses all those things that you're talking about. The ability to sort of build big and at a scale that's pretty rare. Um, certainly, levels it introduces a level of complexity in the design and engineering and execution that's unique. The city of New York and the kind of urban environment and the the necessary regulatory hoops that one has to jump through are all value additive to the overall life of the city, but are, you know, they do take a lot of work and they are different than other places in, that you go where, like in places like Texas, where there's much less zoning and, and fewer regulations and it's an easier process to go from idea to build, build structure or build project. Mm-hmm. And so that level of complexity is higher. It's just every aspect of it and and the players are, are are best in class there's tons of super smart people here tons of super smart people everywhere that's kind of an obvious one but um again it's it comes to sort of like when you're thinking an olympic sport and everybody's diving or everybody's doing the same sort of routine but there's levels of difficulty and the level of difficulty in new york is such that you're able to perform here and address the challenges of working in new york city um that's a transferable skill set because that complexity, I think, comes down a little bit as you go to other places. Going the other way, not impossible by any stretch, but certainly not as easy to go up in complexity as it is to go down in complexity. Right. So kind of the trajectory of your history and your the path you took sounds really ideal. And, I mean, you went to the very best of the very best of the very best. You were like in the Air Force. You were at Notre Dame. You were at um, Wharton you then go to Heinz, which, I mean, everyone listening to this, I'm sure knows Heinz is probably the best, if not the best, one of the very best developers with the best brand reputation experience. I mean, that's like going, you, you, you don't get better than that. You know, it's almost like falling into the most perfect scenario. And I'm sure that 16 years of exposure taught you things that you could never learn at school and gave you a pedigree of knowledge that you just can't pick up outside of that kind of environment. What does someone who's 21 years old today in college, like, what do they do? Do they try and follow the same trajectory? Is it the same kind of thing? Is there, what would you advise them? The fact pattern of my time at Heinz is, is maybe worth sort of exploring in, in conjunction with that, that question, because it might, be, it might help sort of illustrate the answer that I'm going to give. I was really, really lucky in the 16 years that I was with Heinz that every three to five years I was presented with an opportunity to do something new and different. So I came to New York in 2000 and for the first three years or so worked on the development of a million square foot office tower near Times Square, um, a building on 7th Avenue that's now Barclays North American headquarters. 
spent after that, it was post 9-11, a lot of development sort of slowed down and shut down in New York City, was able to then spend a year at the granular level, at the property level, doing a lot of marketing and leasing of vacant space and a portfolio of assets that the company owned in joint venture with CalPERS in the suburban markets north of the city, primarily in, in Fairfield County, Connecticut. After doing that for about a year or two, um, was lucky enough to be asked to join uh, sort of a beginning of a fund business that Heinz was rolling out at that point, and then moved over to the fund management side and worked on the fund management side on an investment fund that was investing in office projects um, around the country for about five years I spent um, on that team. Shortly after that, after those five years, was approached to join the capital markets team. And so going to a global role of helping a global capital markets team go and find equity capital um, for both projects, joint ventures, funds um, that, the, that the firm was raising to pursue different strategies, not just in the U.S., but in places like Poland and Russia and Brazil, as well as Europe and, and North America. After doing that for about four years or so, I uh, was able to go back to the development, which was where my heart was really sort of most happy and where I really had that visceral passion uh, and went down to the D.C. market and worked in the D.C. and Philadelphia markets for about four years back in that frontline development business, looking for deals, sourcing deals, underwriting deals, and executing uh, development projects. So I was really lucky in that while I was with one firm for 16 years, um, I had a diversity of experiences across development asset level experience, fund management experience, front-facing capital raising uh, experience as well. And the reason I bring that up in the context of, of your question is I didn't plan any of that. I went to Heinz saying, I want to go and I want to be a developer and that's what I'm going to do. And this is what I love and this is where my passion is. But because of, of good timing, good luck, and a mixture of both, opportunities would present themselves at certain points where I could try to do something new or move, learn a new skill set um, that I did, you know, get add some tools to my toolkit, um, even though it was uncomfortable because you'd start over again. You know, going from development to the property level, didn't know anything about that, so I had to start all that. Then go to fund management, hadn't done that in the first four or five years, so that was a whole new skill set to learn. Likewise with with capital markets and beyond. And so the advice I would suggest to someone who's coming out of school or thinking about going into any career, it doesn't matter if it's real estate or anything else, is the job in front of you is the most important job you're ever going to have because you never know what that might lead to, and you never know sort of how that's going to infect your life going forward. Even if it's not the dream job you've got, even if it's not the thing that you thought you were going to do long-term, and it very well may not be. Certainly in, in the year 2020, very few people stay in careers, uh, stay in one job for their entire careers. Um, there's lots of changes that go on. But the ability to sort of bring your best effort to the thing that's in front of you and give it absolutely 100% of your energy and your time and your passion would be the biggest piece of advice I could give because that, as you get into sort of how did you end up becoming, you know, in this role at Rockefeller Group, it was because of work I'd done in one of those roles at Heinz that created a relationship with someone that I think it was like seven, eight, 10 years later, when the Rockefeller Group opportunity began to present itself, he said, you know who I would like to talk to about this? I want to talk to this guy I used to work with because I think he might be interested in it. It might be the right fit. Really great advice. And, you know, listening to you talk here makes me think about a couple of things. You know, when I was putting myself through music school here in New York City at the age of 21, I was bartending and really had a respect for the guy, three, three guys uh, who were running the restaurant. And the one owner would always say to me, he needed to do everyone's job who worked for him better than they did it. So, he needed to know how to make every drink behind the bar. He needed to be able to step into the kitchen at any time and 
cook any dish if the, you know or pick mm -hmm. up you know be the busboy be the waiter like do everything you know and i also think of the movie industry in the same way the director almost touches every person on the set right they interact with the mm -hmm. actors the actresses the cameraman the set designers the makeup artists they're they're kind of like the central point and you know working with developers in the nearly 30 years that i've been exposed to developers of all different shapes and sizes the one thing i've seen is the the developers that distinguish themselves and who are better than you know more successful than the others are those that kind of have a broad vision and understanding of the different things that are needed to develop a project you know mm -hmm. yep. i used to work i worked with on a site once the developer knew exactly how many trades he had on the site at all times and he knew every job that everyone was doing he was very hands on he would walk the site and i think that's you know something that's really important and you know obviously you were exposed to that and that's a part of what's made you what you are today being exposed to all of those different facets of the industry and that's a great education and you know congratulations on that so then you go from Heinz now to Rockefeller yep and uh, i thought you know the name of this podcast is the people who are shaping our cities and you know looking forward and seeing how how our skylines are changing i think if there's a global brand in the course of history certainly in new york city Rockefeller as a brand is synonymous with pioneering great architecture culture philanthropy design all of those things and it's a it's a very New York signature how do you feel about having that on your shoulders and ushering that into this century and taking that forward and and moving and where is that going i know it's a lot of questions yeah. in one but maybe yeah, you can talk to that it's um, it's an incredible privilege, um, Sean, to be the current steward, you will, if you will, of, of the brand of Rockefeller Group. You're right; it's a singular legacy that we have here. The impact that that this organization had through its original inception for the development of Rockefeller Center is one of a kind, and it's it does transcend just New York City. It is an American; it's an icon in the history of the United States, without question. And it's just it's a tremendous honor and privilege to be with the team today that gets to be the inheritors of that legacy and has the opportunity to to write the next chapter and what what the history of rockefeller group will be um, it's a really exciting time to be here um, there's been a lot of change in the last few years um, you're a big part of that with our project here in the city of rose hill our luxury condominium project and there's really a lot of going on what we're what we're endeavoring to do today is take all of the things that make Rockefeller Group so special and position it for success. The company's a little bit over 90 years and we want to be just as successful in the next 90 years and beyond. And one of the ways I think about this, we, we recently had a project here in Manhattan with one of our uh, original developed assets from, from the 70s on the west side of 6th Avenue, a building called 1271 Avenue of the Americas. A lot of people know it as the Time Life Building. 50, 60-year-old building that was basically vacant four years ago. Time Life, the original occupant, gave us notice that they were going to be moving and they were going to be vacating all the space. And so over the course of the last four years, we've taken this 50-year-old structure, stripped it down to the bones, reskinned it, new systems, new elevators, new HVAC, 
beautiful, not reimagining, but reconstruction and renovation of the lobby, which is a landmark lobby. Most folks will maybe recognize the building because it's got the Copacabana paving out in front of it um, and a very art deco kind of mid-century modern design aesthetic. And we've taken that classic piece of the fabric of Midtown and repositioned it to meet the needs of today's tenants. And so we're competing with the likes of brand new product, um, Hudson Yards on the far west side, one Vanderbilt, some of the brand new products downtown. And we've been tremendously successful. We've actually filled the building up. We filled the 2 million square feet back up. We're now sit today. We're over 99% leased. I think we've got a half of a floor vacant right now. And that story of the redevelopment of, of 1271 is, I think, in some ways indicative of what we as an organization are about right today. It's We're taking the best of the past, the best of that classic history, the best of the things that make us uniquely New York and uniquely Rockefeller Group, and now positioning for success in the next 90 years, 2020 and beyond. So it's a really exciting time to be here. I am, I love coming to work. I'll be, I know this sounds like kind of cliche and silly and everybody says that stuff, but I really do. There's a lot of fun stuff going on. We've got a great group of people and it's, uh, and you, you get to work with a lot of our team. Um, and it's just, it's a tremendously exciting time. We spent a lot of time over the last couple, three years refocusing sort of, we had some ancillary businesses that we've sold off. We've had some legacy assets that aren't part of our our ongoing, you know, forward-looking strategy. And so mm-hmm. we're kind of at the end of the beginning to use the the Churchill phrase or the new analogy that I like to use with some of our team because we've made some strategic hires and some senior positions over the last couple of years, as well as allocated resources where they're best used and people are bringing the, the utmost of their time and their talents to the organization is if you think about our company and like a classic heist movie like Ocean's Eleven or The Italian Job, Typically in one are, of you movies, first... are you Brad Pitt or are you Brad Pitt? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, I would not presume to be Brad Pitt. Um, but, uh, You're more Matt you know, Damon, those... I think, than Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take Matt Damon any day of the week. I'll take that. Um, but the first third of those movies, right, is always getting the crew together. And we're just now at the part of our heist movie where we got the crew together and we got that last person pulled in. And now's the part where we're all together in like the warehouse out in New Jersey or Long Island. And now we're going to come up with the big thing that we're going to do and how are we going to do it? So we're right at this really interesting inflection point, this really exciting point in our history where if you don't like the heist movie analogy, think about the old Apollo program and the American moon, uh, moon launching and and landing of men on the moon Mm -hmm. program. There's those classic, photos of of the rocket is gone the fire is going it hasn't taken off yet but the gantry is kind of pulling away and the rocket's just about to take off in a lot of ways i think that's where we are at rockefeller group today so i'm tremendously excited about what the next five years ten years hold because i think you're going to see us through some success together that we're having with our organizations um as the first stage of that really um just have a tremendously exciting ride and impact the cities that we live and work, not just in a positive financial way for ourselves, but also you know, to helping add to the civic value, which we talk about a lot, and creating buildings that, that have lasting, not just economic value, but also positively impact people's lives. Yeah, that's awesome. I love your analogies, both you know, to the movies. But you know, by the way, walking through the lobby now in the building is really a great experience um, as a guest. You know, and I can't imagine what it would be like to work there. Really a great place to go and be excited to go to work just from the physical structure of the place. And congratulations for, you know, leasing up the building in a, such a highly competitive office market that we're seeing now with all of this new yeah. product coming on. And, um, yeah, hats off to you for that. Really, really a great accomplishment. I love, you know, hearing you, like, talk about, like, the, you know, the movie analogies. 
made me think that, you know, you kind of have to be a very visual, creative risk taker just to be, you know, you've got to have a vision for the future. You've got to be very visual. You've got to have an imagination because, you know, so much of development is thinking of what's not there and what the highest and best use of something can be and imagining what, what it could be and then creating it and then executing. Do you, do you consider yourself more left brain or right brain or a, a good balance between the two? So I think historically I've probably been a little more quantitative oriented, hence the engineering background. That's where sort of my natural talents typically led me to. I think as I've grown uh, both sort of professionally and personally over the years, that other side has gotten you know more exercise and gets to be exercised more. And certainly in the role that I've got now as, as president and CEO, I don't spend a lot of, a ton of time in the quantitative world. It's much more in the qualitative world and the visionary world and, and thinking about the realm of the possible, not just from a physical standpoint and projects that we might do, but also from a standpoint of, you know, organizationally, what could we be, where could we be going? What else could we be doing? I think if, you were to ask folks who know me, they'd say probably a little more right brain, but I'm working on it. I don't know if you saw, I did a TED talk about uh, maybe two months ago, and the premise of the talk was, you know, coming from my musical background and analyzing the way our brains work and where we come up with ideas and the most effective way for us to be creative. You know, I have this concept where it's really important for creative people or or people, entrepreneurs, or just almost anyone to have structured time for unstructured thinking. You know, the concept is Mm -hmm. we usually have, we usually have our best ideas when we're in the shower. And, you know, that's largely because we're free from distraction, right? We don't have our cell phone in the shower with us. We, we kind of can let our conscious mind rest. And then these ideas come to us. And I actually just finished watching a really great documentary on Bill Gates um, mm-hmm. inside Bill's mind. And he takes a week of the month and he goes to this beautiful cabin in Washington. And all he does there is just sit and read and think. And, you know, I think that's really critical for growth and coming up with ideas. Do you have something like that? Do you have a structure in your life where you can kind of get away and have a structured time for unstructured thinking? You know, I did see your TED talk uh, and I enjoyed it. And I, it, it did, that whole concept really resonated. I was thinking about that because I, I don't think I have historically had that. I have traditionally tried to find a little bit of time in the course of a given day to just take a moment and get out of the flow. Because as you know, you run a big organization. If you let your calendar drive your day, you will fill it up very quickly and there will be no time for unstructured thinking or creative thinking or just that pause. So I've always tried to leave a little bit of time in the calendar that's just blocked out and that can be used to, you know, just pause for a minute, reflect for a minute if you need to think of the things that you don't necessarily have time to when you're just responding to tasks. So I was in I was in your ballpark, but as you started as I watched your TED talk and I was thinking about it, I said that's really interesting. I thought um I said Sean's really onto something because there is that that part of your brain that is tremendously creative and tremendously intuitive and can be tremendously powerful, but it gets overwhelmed when you're constantly trying to just respond to tasks or do the next thing I've got to do, get to the next meeting, respond to the next request. And so I've begun to try to find a way to fit your concept into my day. Uh, I do have a bit of a commute going back and forth. We live up in, in suburban New York and Connecticut and uh, that train time 
can actually be quite quite a good time for a lot of different things. I'm trying to find a way to sort of fit my unstructured thinking time into that train time. So you caught my attention with that. And so I'm working, I'm working on that as well. Cause I do find it to be, um, I, I, th- I thought you were really onto something there. I thought that was great. Oh, awesome. That's good to know. Do you have any other rituals that maybe you learned in the air force or just during the course of your life with respect to, you know, do you get up at a certain time? I mean, I know that like, I cannot leave my house unless my, I make my bed. Like that's one thing. And, and I don't know why I've, I've always been yeah. that way. Like I, I'd miss a train if I had to make my bed. Um, I can't leave, you know, dishes in the sink. I can't, you know, certain things have to be in order. And um, do, do you like have a exercise ritual? Do you wake up at a certain time? Do you meditate? What do you do for general health and wellness? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of everything. So, uh, exercise is vital for sure. Um, and, uh, so with, with the schedule that I've got, and we've got, we've got a busy family life as well. Um, my wife, Wendy and I, we have three sons and everybody's still, still in the house. Now we have a high school or a middle school or an elementary school, a student. So it's a busy calendar for us. And so I find for me, I really like to start the day with exercise on the days that I do. Um, and so I've got a, a Peloton bike in the basement and on the days I exercise, you know, I'm on the bike by 5.15. Um, I'm done with the class, done with the stretching by 6.05 and can do some of those other things. And that really does set the tone really well. And if I can get yeah, that in Peloton you know, three or four days a week. Peloton is awesome. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on the Peloton as well. Who, who's the instructor? Who do you follow? Do you do Matt Wilper's class? Yeah, so I, so if you're a quantitative guy, Matt's your guy, right? He's, I mean, he's awesome. Just, he's fantastic. That guy is like, he's really awesome. He is a favorite because he tells you what you're doing. He tells you why you're doing it and how you're going to get there and why it's going to be, why it's going to be beneficial for you. So I'm a big Matt Wolpers fan. Um, I'm also a big Allie Love fan. I really like. She has just a a great energy. Her classes are tough. Um, and but you talk about you know there's people that you that you see or you experience and obviously you're experiencing this person through a screen, but those instructors and Matt is one and and Allie as well. Um, just super high energy, super positivity, and that you can't help but sort of sort of feed off of that a little bit. And it's a it's a tremendous way to get get the day started. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, My wife is a huge yeah. Ellie Love fan. I've never done her class, <laughs> but I, but she's, she's like she follows on her Instagram, and it's and it's really awesome. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, they're great. kind of they're kind of celebrities in their own right. These Peloton instructors. Peloton is like the future of fitness. I think to some yeah. extent, you know, using. AI technology, but still connecting to the human spirit. You know, I think, I mean, you know this, we've talked a little bit about this. I think the way we live our lives in our homes is, you know, it hasn't changed much since the 70s, 80s, 90s. And, you know, Mm -hmm. part of what my philosophy is, we need to start paying attention to changes that we need to implement in residential homes because people don't live the same way that they Mm -hmm. lived in the 70s or the 80s. And, um, what are your thoughts on that and where Rockefeller, you know, sees this in the future? And maybe you can give me some spoiler alerts about what you see <laughs> Rockefeller doing for the next five or 10 years. Sure, sure. So we're really in the business. And one of the reasons that I came to Rockefeller Group in 2016 is to really grow our development business. We've got five geographic regions around the country right now. I think we had four when, when I first started. We've grown into one down in the D.C. area that we call our Mid-Atlantic region. And across the country, we really pursue all product types, office, residential, and industrial. I think as I look at the next five or 10 years, office continues to be very, very dynamic. And the evolution of what office is and what is going to be class A office continues to evolve. I think what we've seen is, while there's very much still, you know, in in sort of my career, 
early on, Class A office was defined really by the physical dimensions of the project, floor to ceiling heights, the amount of vision glass, HVAC systems, the amount of power per square foot, um, the kind of materials that were used. And while that's still very true, you've also seen, especially with technology tenants and the kind of structures that they want to go in, the kind of physical environments that they want to be in, things that would have been called class B or even class C have become class A because of the nature of the tenants who want to be there. They want a more raw feel. They want sort of a more industrial feel, brick and iron, a more visible expression of the structure of the building itself. Um, not necessarily, you know, your father's class A building. And so office, I think, is going to continue to evolve in interesting ways. And that idea of what class A is has really expanded the definition beyond just the physical to include. It's almost what the experience is. It's an experiential definition, not just a physical definition. So we're going to be looking at office and, and, and trying to find the ways to respond to what we see as that, that ongoing evolution. We work as having been disruptive in that space, even though its business model is kind of, you know, not sustainable and right. it clearly has its, its issues. But do you see that having have disrupted the office space in a meaningful way that would influence you moving forward? What we work in and co-working groups like them have done is proven, uh, it's basically like a really expensive proof of concept study. And that there is a need and a desire from tenants of all sizes to have this kind of flexible environment that is structured in a different way. That is, And a lot of, I think, what made WeWork so successful is, is the places that they made, the aesthetics that they made. That's a lot of the magic in, in the things that we do professionally is finding those wonderful designers and architects that can create the places where people want to be. Um, the idea of shared office space, I mean, Regis was doing that for years before WeWork ever came along. Um, WeWork just did it in a way that was a lot cooler and a lot better. Um, so I think they've, they've brought a new flavor to it, the idea, and others like them have brought a new flavor and a new perspective on it and revealed the depth of the demand. What I think we've seen now post-WeWork and in the last few years is it's a very low barrier to entry business concept. And all of the large office portfolio owners are now pursuing similar business models within their portfolio, either through their own branding or in partnership with another co-officer or, or co-working provider. So it's definitely informed the evolution of it, but it be, now it becomes more, I think, if you have a big portfolio, you want to have some of it as a landlord, but you want to necessarily, you probably want to control it. It's an operating agreement, not a leasing agreement. Because if one of your large tenants were to come to you and say, hey, by the way, I could use another half a floor, you want to be able to control that and not necessarily have it being controlled by someone else. But short of that, you can have that as an amenity to the building, a co-working space that everyone can use or flex space for your larger tenants to go in and out of. So I think they've proven a concept, but it's a concept that now has been widely embraced by not just the, the sort of innovating firms and the new firms, but by some of the online real estate family and large portfolio owners to bake into their portfolio. And then on the residential side? So the residential side, I think, is where we're, you'll, you'll see us be doing more. And it really is going to depend on where we are in the country as to the kind of things that you'll see us doing. So the work that, that our, our companies together are working on in New York, um, high-rise condominium, high design, high aesthetic, high amenities, um, but still at what is, for New York pricing, an attainable price point and a competitive price point. In other parts of the country, um, most notably, we, we're doing some work out in the desert southwest where we're doing 
stick build, suburban residential, but again, thoughtfully designed, well amenitized, and incredibly well run. And that product um, is meeting a different market. It's 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 in the same philosophical realm as what we're doing together at Rose Hill, our project in Nomad. Very different physical expression, but the idea is to bring the best quality at a certain price point. And we've seen a really great responsiveness from the market on that. Very different kind of market, very different kind of price point, but just as successful as we've seen in the market receptivity to Rose Hill. And so what we try to do as an organization is not, it's sort of the difference between a performance spec and a prescriptive spec. So it's the difference between me telling you, you've got to build a two hour fire rated wall or a wall that's made out of cinder blocks. What I've asked our teams around the country to do, whether you're in Southern California or Atlanta or New Jersey or here in New York city is let's go find the best ideas we've got as an organization that allow us to execute with our primary skill set and our competitive advantages in the real estate environment, but are the smartest ideas that we've got. So in the residential space in the desert Southwest, that's stick build for rent class A. Um, we're looking to grow that business and are looking this year, I think you'll see us spend a little more time where we're going to be spending time out in the Rocky Mountain West um, because there's some really interesting demographic trends going on there, both in the for rent and for There's sale. also some... Yeah, there's also some really good skiing out there. Apparently, there may there may be some other, there there may be some site visits that the CEO may ask to sort of go on if we want to go if we're really going to be serious about growing the business. Um, right. But, um, but I think that uh, you'll see us do do some more residential. So when I think about what we're up to, um, office is a very tactical strategy for us, especially because we have our core portfolio of Class A office here in Manhattan. Um, residential is a more broad-based strategic portfolio because I sort of my joke that is not all that not all that funny is, you know, I don't exactly know exactly where office is going to go, but we're willing to sort of figure it out slowly and, and steadily and, and tactically. But I do feel fairly confident that people will continue to want to live inside and not outside. So building great places for people to live is a pretty good long-term strategy. Um, it's just how do we express that and how do we go about it? We've also got a very robust industrial business and that, you know, is clearly been a very popular asset sector for the last few years. The the market fundamentals supporting the ongoing sort of development of, of new well-located class A warehouse and industrial product um, is still very much supported um, and is a business that I expect that we'll continue to be in and continue to be successful in. Fantastic. Very, very exciting. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, what you guys do in all of those spaces. A couple of quick questions just to, yeah. uh, to close this out, um, do you have a favorite quote? I know you mentioned Winston Churchill earlier, and he's he's got uh, so many great quotes. But is there a favorite quote you live by? Oh man, there's. I've got a. It's it's funny you say that. Um, I actually keep a running note on my iPad of quotes that I like um, and things that I find to be very inspirational. And so, you know, it ranges from things as simple as, you know, we mentioned that I went to went to college at Notre Dame. And if if you're familiar with Notre Dame and the Notre Dame football team, there's a sign in the locker room that the players hit on their way out to the field. And it says, play like a champion today. Mm -hmm. And it's important because it doesn't say win, um, because winning and losing is a whole different thing. But playing like a champion talks about how you approach your work, how you approach your life, how you approach your business and the attitude you take. No matter what happens as the result, the way that you handle yourself and the way that you comport yourself is like a champion. One of my favorite ones in sort of times, everybody's got those, those sort of difficult times in their lives. In Hemingway's book of Farewell to Arms, there's a great quote 
that you know the world breaks everyone at some point. I'm going to get it not 100 right, but basically mm-hmm. the world breaks everyone at some point. But afterwards, many are strong at the broken places. And that said, that idea of being strong at the broken places has always kind of resonated with me. That everybody's got those times in their lives that are challenging, that are difficult, um, that maybe things don't go exactly the way you thought, or there's sadness or difficulty, um, or in some cases even you know sort of tragedy. But finding yeah. the concept of being stronger at the broken places is something that I've always, I've always sort of found that's resonated with me. We could do a whole other half an hour right. of quotes that I like, but I won't no, bore absolutely. you with any more than that. Yeah, we, we'll, <laughs> we'll have to do that over dinner and a, and a drink. And, and it's funny, that last quote is kind of like a much more sophisticated way of saying what my sister always says to me, which is, if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. <laughs> yep. Yep. Same concept. Same idea. Um, Same idea, yeah. Do you have? Do you read a lot? Do you have a favorite book, a favorite author? You've mentioned a lot of great authors. Um, is there a favorite book? For you know, call it entertainment reading. Um, David Foster Wallace has always been a favorite of mine, and his book Infinite Jest, which is a heavy lift, um, is one of the greatest you know sort of American novels that's ever been written, and is uh, is a wonderful piece of literature. Um, but it's it is it is a pretty heavy lift if, for those that are familiar with it, and then. Um, Outside of that, I'm, re- I'm reading a book right now or trying to read a book right now that I'm, I'm fascinated by. I can't remember the author's name, but it's called The Winter Army. And this goes back to the skiing thing. Um, and it's all about um, the training of the 1st 10th Mountain Division, uh, which fought in World War II as a response to what, what the U.S. had seen as far as the sophisticated mountain fighting forces of the German Army um, and the need to create a similar sophisticated mountain fighting force with the U.S. military. Because up to that point, the U.S. military was, was really kind of of a southern, you know, sort of temperate climate-based uh, based military. And so I'm enjoying that. And there's all these great names of these great sort of iconic folks in the history of skiing in the United States and how it developed with the 10th Mountain Division and the guys that, you know, go and found Alta, like we talked about, and these other great places on the East Coast. So um, I'm enjoying wow, that one in these five minutes. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's two great recommendations that I haven't read. So I'm going to definitely check those out. Um, <laughs> definitely. Well, listen, um, I'm going to not take up any more of your time. You've been really generous. And this was really fantastic, enlightening, fascinating. You're definitely, you know, an inspiration on so many fronts. And I'm sure some of the listeners will find inspiration in a lot of what you've said. And, you know, really want to thank you for your insight. Um, Thanks for sharing some of your personal history and and story. And, uh, it's an absolute pleasure working with you on Rose Hill, and I'm very proud of what we've done so far there. Looking forward to getting it completely sold out, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do with, uh, you know, what you and Rockefeller do over the next five to ten years. Very, very exciting. Well, it's it's beyond kind of you to say, Sean. This this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you uh, extending the invitation to spend time with you on your podcast. We're thrilled to be, you know, working together on on Rose Hill. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to to get to know you and your team, um, and to to be a part of of this initiative that you've got with the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been it's been great. Awesome. Well, have a great weekend with the family, and if you're going you skiing, too. you know, be careful. <laughs> yes. And I'll probably Likewise. see you in a, I'll probably see you in a couple of weeks um, at a meeting. That sounds great. I'll look forward to it, Sean. All right, Dan. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, take care. Bye-bye.